Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Page 177 of Footsteps of Messiah in your book. And we left off with 144,000. We explained their where they're from, who they're not, who they are. These are Jewish men. And we talked a little bit about them. Now we're going to look now at their results of their ministry. And then you go into uh, Revelation 14 to see the results. But interesting thing about Matthew 24, if you're right there in the middle of the page, Matthew 24 is... is the Olivet Discourse. He's talking about the tribulation, and he says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all nations, and then the end shall, or the end come. And, and so what, what it's basically saying is that during the tribulation, it the gospel, but notice what it's connected to. The gospel of what? The kingdom. That is a, a, a an addition that is preached with the gospel that you currently know. Death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. The gospel of the kingdom is because the kingdom is at hand. It is getting ready to happen. They will be years away from it. And so the addition that the 144,000 attached to it is not only the gospel, but that the kingdom is just at hand. Just like John the Baptist preached. That's what, that's why the caveat on there is, is a little bit different. Now this is interesting because many, many Christians don't get this. They think that this just simply means that the gospel will be, will be preached by the church and then Jesus comes back. Totally, that's fundamentally wrong and totally wrong. And guys like David Platt and a lot of these Kingdom Now guys and Reformed guys will say, look, there it is, that when the, 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 the gospel is preached to all the nations, then Jesus comes back. That's not what that text is saying. And so you'll hear a guy like David Platt says, well, there's only 300 more people groups in the world. And we're going to close in on those 300 people groups in the next 10 years. So that means in the next 10 years, Jesus could come back once we get to the last people group. When you do that, you're setting a date. When you do that, obviously you're taking the text out of context. And I, I, This is the guy of the head of the Southern Baptist International Mission Board. How does he make that fundamental error? Who listens to that? Who buys into that? Celebrity status, or what? what is that, you know? Because obviously you see that all the discourse is within the tribulation. And is not done by the church because the church is not here. So who's doing it? 144,000. So you connect Matthew 24 to Revelation 7 and 14. The act of evangelism is being done by Jewish virgin males. in the story. And they're from the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're the ones carrying the message of the gospel throughout the entire planet. When they get finished with their testimony, then the end comes. Then the, tri- the tribulation ends and Messiah comes back when they finish their work. I don't understand, and you've tried to help me, how that could get so messed up in people's minds. I guess you have to read into the text, I guess. I don't know. It's It's very plain English. Okay, let's look at the results of the ministry of the 144,000. After these things, talking about after the tribulation, I saw and behold a great multitude. There is the results. A great multitude. This is a, a multitude of Gentiles and Jews, okay? Which no man could number. Notice, out of every nation and of all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, arrayed in white robes and palms in their hands, and they cry with a great voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Now, that's the results. That's the results of this ministry of the Jewish evangelists. And one of the elders, that's somebody from the church, answered, saying unto me, These 
that are arrayed in white robes, who are they? And whence they came? Or whence, uh, whence came they? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are they that come out of the great tribulation. And they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the result of their ministry is a great multitude. What the great multitude means it's innumerable. So one of the purposes, and we'll see this later on, of the, of the tribulation is worldwide evangelism and a great revival that happens through their ministry. These guys are sealed, so therefore they're protected through the whole seven years. No one will ever be able to kill them. And you see why they're sealed. They need to evangelize. And God has them in place to do that. Now, I will say this. You'll see later on in the book of Revelation, because they're human beings and because the world is in such climactic states and there's been probably floods and tornadoes and all kinds of worldwide cataclysmic events, they will not be able to get to all parts of the world. There will be people trapped in certain locations all through the planet because of earthquakes and tsunamis and whatever has hit the planet. Guess what God does? He sends the angels. If a man, if a human being can't get there and someone wants salvation, the angels are sent out and they fly through the atmosphere giving the gospel out. You talk about grace. You talk about mercy. God's not willing that any should perish. If you're trapped on an island and I can't get someone to you, God says, I'll send an angel to you. To make sure that everybody's got a chance. I find that amazing. That's the importance of sealing them is that they can't die. They are witnessing all the way through as a testimony to the to a lost world. You see a lot of grace in the book of Revelation. I know there's a lot of judgment, but you'll see God's grace all over the place throughout this. Okay, so that's one of the purposes of the Great Tribulation. Now let's go to the page, uh, the next page, 178. The third reason of the Tribulation is to break the power of the holy people. The holy people, obviously, is Israel. To break their power. We'll read that in the, we'll, we'll try to talk about this. And this is in Daniel chapter 12. It says this, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two. The one on the brink of the river on this side, and the other on the brink of the river on that side. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Talking about the end times, talking about the tribulation, okay? And I heard a man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swore by him that lives forever, that it shall be for a time's time and a half. So that's three and a half years. And when they had made an end of breaking in pieces, and this is your key phrase right here, the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Talking about the tribulation. All these things in the tribulation shall be finished. So the other purpose of the great tribulation is to break Israel. Break its power. The, the translation in Hebrew is break its hand, which means strength or power. What, what, what is that talking about? What, what, what power does Israel have that he must break them of? Their pride. Bingo. You got it. See, Israel makes the, as a nation, makes the same mistake we make as individuals. So when you look at the nation of Israel, you're supposed to learn from their corporate mistake to your individual mistakes. Here's the biggest problem that Israel has always faced. God will supernaturally help them. They will win battles in throughout all Old Testament history. And they'll do supernatural things and accomplish amazing, amazing things. You know what the tendency is if you don't give credit to God? You start taking the credit for it. You start taking the idea that I did this. I made this happen. I'm a self-made man. I worked hard for this. And the attitude of that has permeated throughout Israel's history that they've done it on their own. And God has to keep breaking them and breaking them, saying, no, you did not. You wouldn't have done it because of me. 
Now, here's what's going to happen. As you can see, even in current history, Israel fights like no other army on this planet. It's because they're supernaturally enabled, even in 1948, 67, 73, and all their skirmishes, they rout people. They're outgunned, outmanned, out everything, and they still win supernaturally. Now, you and I know it's because God is helping them. Supernaturally, God is there, giving them that kind of strength. And he told them that he would do that for them. And so, they will continue to be self-reliant through this whole thing. Now, I want you to think about this. After Psalm 83, they'll look around and say, we don't have any more Arab nations anymore around us. We've taken them all out. Yes, through the power of God, but they'll tend to start being independent of God if they're not already at this point. Look what we did. We took all these people out. And then Gog and Magog will happen. And the the other, like Russia, Iran, Libya, will be taken out. Their armies will be destroyed on the mountains of Israel. Now, some Jews will get it and come to faith in Messiah, but the majority of the nation will not. So guess what they'll start to think? We took out all the Arab nations, now we took out Russia, we took out them. Look how self-sufficient we are. We are one of the most powerful nations on this planet. We don't need God. We're taking care of business by ourselves. It will enter into the the covenant uh, with Antichrist. He will do some type of deal with them. And for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, you will not be able to touch Israel. They will be under some type of protection or agreement that no one messes with them until the midpoint and then Antichrist goes after them. So I want you to think through the logic of this. They're getting powerful, stronger, no one can move them, stronger, no, they win wars, win wars almost supernaturally with Psalm 83 and then obviously supernaturally with Gog and Magog. It's building up their pride. They start becoming self-reliant. So God has to do something. I gotta bring you down. Boom. The tribulation is to cause Israel to break down. Break their pride, break their stubbornness, break the stiff neck, and just to put them down on their backs until they cry out, Hosanna. That's how bad it has to get. Now how bad does that get? They do a deal with the devil, basically. And two-thirds of them will be killed to break them. Now, he'll explain why the two-thirds would be killed. Zechariah talks about the two-thirds, but in the passages we'll read tonight, it talks about, I'm getting rid of the rebellion in your own camp, and I'm taking out them. So that means there's two-thirds of Israelites that are in rebellion and will not come to faith in Messiah, and he's getting rid of them. And he does it through the Antichrist. That's how he's breaking them, Israel. Now, now put that in, in modern day application to us as individuals, as Christians. If you want to take strides in your spiritual walk, I've never seen anyone really do a lot for the Lord unless they're really broken. Unless they're taken to the woodshed and they allow themselves to be broken and admit failure, admit you're right, Lord, I need to humble myself, I need to stop this prideful attitude then they can be used. And that's the problem with Israel. They cannot be used by Messiah until they're broken. And and many of us have already been broken. Many of us have been cracked and, and bent out of shape. And it's a humbling experience, but you cannot serve Messiah unless you have been broken, unless your pride has been put down. And you think about salvation, and, and we talk about this all the time. The primary problem that people have of why they won't come to faith in Jesus, why they reject Him, is their stinking pride. They will not admit their need. And so they pridefully go through this life thinking, I don't need Jesus, I don't need God, I don't need anybody, and I don't need you. I'll set my course, I'm the captain of my own ship, don't tell me what to do. You're seeing pride at its height, and God says, I can break you of that. 
and I will. And I will do everything I can to get your attention. And if I have to bring you to your knees, I will. And you know what the funny thing about it is? I've seen people brought to their knees and they still don't come. God does everything he can to break the pride of individuals. And I, I've seen people on their deathbed not relent. Say, I've lived this way all my life, Pastor. Uh, I would be a hypocrite if I accepted Jesus now. And then they die. What, are you crazy? Yes. Pride makes people crazy. And I've seen people on their deathbed not even repent because they want to go into eternity the way they want to. It's, it's shocking, and you and I are shocked by it, but that's what pride does. So God's saying, I'm going to put you through the vice grip and break this pride of you. And, and honestly, the two-thirds of Israel, those are the ones who won't let go of their pride. So he kills them. And, and that's why, like, you start getting paranoid. As you see with Saul, he says, oh, you're all against me. This is a conspiracy, man. That's when you see that they're the, at the end of their rope with selfishness. Now, interesting enough, if they go into eternity like that, God gives them their selfishness. You wanted to be with yourself? You can. You will be isolated in hell by yourself for all eternity. This, this notion that there's a party going on in hell and everybody's having a, a good time and drinking martinis, and stuff like that is out of their minds. They're in pitch blackness, can't see anybody, doesn't, they don't know, so know that if anyone's there with them, totally isolated alone for all eternity. And in inferno with flames. I can't see, I'm burned, and I don't know who's around me. Because God is saying, you wanted to be, live by yourself? You can live by yourself for all eternity in a place called hell. It's the epitome of selfishness. He gives them what they want. Scary, isn't it? That people would that be in love with them that much. Let's just take center of the earth. There's no direct sunlight in there, but because of the lava you would have and, and the fire, you would have light. But it's pitch blackness because there's no sun. You could still somewhat see because of the glow of the lava. So the the description of hell or Gehenna, is exactly what you would expect in the core of the earth. And you would have all those illustrations not actually contradict, but actually accurately describe the core of the planet. Because they, they can't see. Fire and brimstone is what is a mo the, the old language for what we call now lava. So the, the lake of fire is a lake of lava, is basically what that is. Bad. Very bad. Okay, so everybody, that makes sense. It, that's the, one of the, the purposes of it. We see this, the means by which God will perform this is given in Ezekiel 20. Let's read Ezekiel 20 and watch how this happens. As I live, says the Lord Yahweh, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. And I will bring you out of the peoples and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered. They were scattered everywhere before 1948. Now you're seeing in 1948, you start bringing them back, right? or even before that. But that's the idea. I'm bringing you back into the land from out of the peoples, out of the nations, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. So he's going to continue to do this. For what? So I can judge you. I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter judgment with you face to face. I'm bringing you back to Israel because I'm going to have a face-to-face -face judgment with you, Israel. Like as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness in the, of the land of Egypt. So it's like that. Simil it's similar to that. So I will enter into judgment with you, says the Lord Yahweh. And I will cause you to pass under the rod. The rod is the rod of inspection. You would hold over a sheep to make sure you inspected him before he came in your pen. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I, no, here's the, the phrase, I will purge out from among you the rebels. Right off to the side there, right, Zechariah chapter 13. We know the amount of the rebels. It is two-thirds of the rebels of Israel. So whatever that number is in the tribulation, Two-thirds of them will be removed. So that's why he's doing this. I'm entering judgment into you to get rid of the unbelieving element out of you forever. Forever I'm removing these guys. 
and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the land wherein where they sojourn, so where they have come from. Whether they're in America or Europe, I'm bringing them in for judgment. But they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am Yahweh. The idea they shall not enter the land of Israel is this. Once I judge them through the Antichrist and through, through Messiah, only the remnant, only the one-third, are allowed to enter into the kingdom of Israel in the land of Israel during the Messianic age. That's why I'm getting rid of the two-thirds. They're not going to be allowed to come in. So this goes back to the sheep and goat judgment. To understand this, so people don't, don't mis, mis, mistake this, it's the sheep and goat judgment is a judgment of Gentiles, not the Jews. The Jews are purged during the tribulation. So when he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me, they have already been judged. The, the, one, the brethren that are with Christ at the sheep and goat judgment are the remnant of Israel. There is no unbelieving Israel at that point in time. So he can call them his brethren and the remnants. So the judgment is Gentiles after the second coming. There is no more Jew, unbelieving Jews before the second coming. What causes Jesus to come back? The unbelieving element of Israel? No. The remnant calls out to him. And that's when he comes back. So all that's left is the remnant. The two-thirds have been destroyed, exactly as God says, I'm going to purge out the rebels. Um, anyway, any questions on that so far? You all right? Yes. You got the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation. There could be several years in there before even the tribulation starts. We're not sure. Three, seven, ten years, I don't know. And then you have the start of the tribulation with Antichrist signing a peace covenant with Israel. The first three and a half years, nothing is happening to Israel. They are protected. No one's messing with them. And in fact, um, mass revivals are happening. But yet, persecution is happening under the whore of Babylon for Gentiles. Three and a half year mark, Antichrist turns on Israel, attacks her, and then he is responsible for taking two-thirds out. Now, God allows this, he predicted it, but he's using the hand of the Antichrist to do this. He is the shepherd, the uh, the hireling shepherd, talked about by Zechariah, that is going to destroy Israel. And so he destroys two-thirds, and so you, you go into Zechariah 13, and you see the two-thirds are destroyed. So that happens the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So the one-third that's the remnant, they escape into Petra, and some of them stay in Jerusalem. They make it through all the way to the end. But the, the non-believing Jewish element is destroyed even before the second coming. So three days before the second coming, national, national regeneration of Israel happens with the remnant. They all get saved, and they call upon Yeshua, and they, they fast and pray, and, and uh, dreams and visions of Joel come, and then three days later, Messiah comes back to save them. And then after he sets up, uh, he, um, after he gets that and protects Israel and rescues them, then he sets up the sheep and goat judgment before the kingdom starts. And that is of saved and unsaved Gentiles. So there's three groups in that, that judgment. The brethren... And then the sheep and goats, which are unsaved and saved Gentiles. Yeah, you're talking about Matthew 25 or 24. Yeah, uh, two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. That actually, um, because, and this is, I used to say it was the taken in judgment, but the problem is. There's a peri day there in the Greek. A peri day, p r p e r i and then d e i, I think it's called. When you see a peri day, it means it's introducing a new subject. And that's the thing about the all of the discourse. It goes from subject to subject, from line upon line, and introducing new subjects. And then when you see the peri day, I'll read it for you real quick. Um, 
it introduces a new subject. So what I have been convinced now of, because of the Perry Day, is that it's talking about the rapture, because he's introducing a new subject. Because after that, he's already explained all of the discourse. After that, the admonitions then go for watching for the thief in the night, which are admonitions for the rapture. The second coming is not a thief in the night per se, because you'll know the timing of it exactly down to the day. It's the rapture that we don't know. Um, so let me ex let me read this real quick. This is going to be um, Matthew 24, and it's going to be verse 36. When you see a verse, especially in your English start, with the word but, you and I just think that's a continuation, it's a conjunction, and it's just continuing the next thought. It's not doing that in the Greek. The Greek, when you see a peri day, is that the writer is introducing a new subject. And that's how you know when to break up a passage and when not. And in that verse 36, you have a peri day. So when he says, but of that day, it's introducing a new subject. And he says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were also, uh, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days of the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day of Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man, uh, the Son of Man, uh, of Man be. Then it says, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, the reason I have flip-flopped in my, in my view of that passage, because I used to hold to that that was taken in judgment, is the peri day, but then the, also the, the illustrations that Jesus is giving. And notice the illustration. Now, I, I could be dead wrong, um, but I think, I think the evidence leans towards this. This is why it changed. When he's talking about the days of Noah, notice what he is saying about marrying and giving in marriage. They will be going about their daily lives. What was happening before Noah's day? Yes, it was violent, but they were going about their daily lives. That's what that phrase means. As if nothing is going to happen. That's what that phrase means. It's a Hebrew idiom that Jesus is using. And, and, and there was no run-up. There was no warning about Noah's flood. Except Noah saying it. Right? There was no cataclysmic, like the rain started 40 days before the flood came. It didn't. It happened at one time. And then they got caught. So if you watch, if you watch the parallels between Noah's flood and the rapture, there are no signs for it. It just happened. And so will the rapture. The only warning you get is a verbal warning from those witnessing about it. Like Noah or us. Okay, and the idea that they're given in marriage, okay, think about this. In the tribulation, are they going about through natural life anymore? No. In the tribulation, this is where the deductions starting to happen, they're running for their lives. There's cataclysmic events happening. No one's worrying about, hey, who am I going to hook up with uh, and get married to and have babies because all hell has come to the earth. There's no, there's no, they're going to try to live. They're starving to death. The sun is scorching. We have a, a good indication the planet has moved out of orbit. There's no time to be married. So if you see what Jesus is saying is they went about through natural life before I came. That is an indication of what's happening right now prior to the rapture. That's exactly what was happening with, with Noah. They didn't think it was coming. With the tribulation, and he says this, that people are taken. I think that is a reference to the rapture. Women are taken. The right and one is taken, the other left. Therefore, watch, therefore, you do not know again when the Lord's coming. And, and look at the last phrase, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would have come, he would have been prepared is the idea. You can only say that about the second coming. You cannot say that about the rapture. The rapture, no man knows. 
No one knows the hour or day. He just comes. The second coming, if we were in the tribulation, I would know exactly what day he's coming back. I could count the days. So because of that, there's no, there's no imminency. If I know that I, um, let's pretend we're in the tribulation and I see the abomination of desolation, I know instantly I got three and a half more years left before he comes back. You know down to the very day. But with a rapture, you don't know the day or the hour. So that's where I'm starting to lean more towards this is a, with the Perry day that he's introducing a new subject. Because at this point, what you'll see in the Olivet Discourse from 36 on, he moves into parables explaining readiness. So, so we, we've moved out of a chronological order and him introducing the Perry day is introducing the parables about readiness is what I really believe is going on there. So to answer your question, I think that's where it's happening. Yeah, so you're on something. So let's connect that dot. Paul said in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, that's your passage, that he does not come as a thief in the night to us. He says, but concerning the times and seasons, I do not want you ignorant, brethren. So interesting the phraseology that Paul is using versus what the Lord. The Lord says, you don't know the hour or day I come. Paul says, you'll know the season and times, though. Which is different than saying they are our. That Paul will say the remnant of believers will generally know that they're in the last days and know that my coming is near. They may not know the day or hour, but they'll know the season. He uses the different phraseology and he says he won't come as a thief in the night to believers because we will be aware of the season. And I definitely think we're in the season, my friends. And because of that, that means we're close. And that's, that separates, now here's the deal, and, and notice the term earth dwellers. That, that term will come up, and I think I mentioned this to you, what, 12 times? You'll see the word earth dweller in the book of Revelation. That's a technical term. Because the wrath is being poured out, we're studying the general descriptions of the wrath being poured out, the only way to escape that wrath is to be off the earth. So he'll call the, the, the perishing earth dwellers. Because that's where the wrath is being poured out. The, earth, the wrath is poured out on earth dwellers. So the rapture is, is a necessity to get us off the planet. Hence, the church is not there. I'll be kept, you'll be kept out of that time period. Any other questions on that? Okay. couple general descriptions, and we'll, we'll take a break after this. Page 179, the general descriptions, and this is important to understand about this, this great tribulation that's coming. The first thing it's, it, you see this is, this is called the little apocalypse of Isaiah. And Isaiah talks a little bit about this tribulation and what happens during it. It's basically utter desolation. He says this, behold, Yahweh makes the earth empty and makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be, and then he's going to go through a lot of different people. As with the people, so with the priest. As with the servant, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. So it continues on all these, these different people. It's saying no one is excluded if you're on the earth. Everyone is going to get this. Move down to the, the last uh, uh, sentence. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The lofty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is polluted under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Let's stop right there. I am going to destroy planet earth, not by water, but how? Fire. And fire is not only a literal fire, but there's a spiritual metaphorical sense of fire, which is always connected to judgment. I'm going to destroy the earth again by fire or judgment, and I'm going to make it desolate to where you will not recognize planet earth when God is done with planet earth. You just won't recognize it. This is why he almost has to do a recreation when Messiah comes back. He almost recreates the entire planet. That being the case, 
Why must God destroy the earth? Because what did the earth do? Well, it's what humans did to it. And don't, don't get me wrong. This ain't creation care. And this ain't tree hugging language. Okay? It's not because we're hurting the environment with our big SUVs as, uh, Al, what's his name? Al, uh, Gore, not Roker, but Gore. Um, your SUVs. Um, the way he says it, um, what it, it, what, how we pollute the planet is not by what Obama says. We pollute the planet by sin. That's fundamentally different. They don't want to omit that one, do they? Okay. In the land of Israel, and you know this very well, in the land of Israel, when Israel would sin, it would pollute the land. And there was varying, various regulations to make sure that Israel would cleanse the land and make sure that it didn't get polluted by shedding of innocent blood and different things like that. So that was for Israel, and they were supposed to take care of that land. But who takes care of the rest of the world where all the other Gentiles are? The Gentile nations. They're responsible for taking care of their area. Now, what do you mean? Well, what laws is he referring to here? What statutes are the Gentiles under? What did they break as far as the everlasting covenant? What covenant are the Gentiles under? Not Mosaic, not Abrahamic, not land, not Davidic, not even new. The church is under the new covenant, and Israel will eventually be under the new covenant. What covenant are the Gentile nations under? Noahic. The, the Gentile nations are under the Noahic covenant and the rules and stipulations that are there in Genesis uh, chapter 9, 1 through 17. The Gentiles are supposed to keep these laws. Now, interesting enough, Paul in his book in Romans, in chapters 1, chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, will say that the law is where on the hearts of Gentiles. Engraved? What is it? What is it? Let's, let's see what, let's see what specifically Paul said about this. Because if you think the law that Paul's referring to when he refers to Gentiles is the Mosaic law, that's not what he's referring to. The Gentiles are not under Mosaic law. I'm going to Romans right now, my friend. And we're going to go to... Uh, let's just read verse uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 22 first, and then we'll jump to chapter 2. Watch Paul's argumentation. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of who? Men. Not just distinction with Israel, but all men, right? Who, what, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Not the lack of evidence, it's the suppression of truth. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Right? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even by his eternal power, and uh, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Okay, You know those passages very well, but he is referring to Gentiles. Okay, So now then jump to 20, uh, chapter 2 and go to verse 11, and he'll explain this. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Okay? So, for not the hearers of the law are, are just in the sight of God, but the doers of law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, let's talk about the Mosaic law, by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, 
who show the work of the law, not engraved, but written in their hearts. The work of the law is, is, is written. Now, not, it didn't say the law is written. It says the work of the law is written. Their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, the apocalypse, which is the tribulation according to my gospel. The law that the Gentiles have is not the Mosaic law, it is the Noahic law. Therefore, they are held accountable to that law. And in the Noahic law are the eternal laws of God. Also, the eternal laws are God and found in the Mosaic law. The eternal laws of God are always there. But if you look at the Mosaic law, the Gentile nations are held to a different standard than, than, than the Jews. The Jews obviously have a higher standard. But the law are the works of the law that are on the heart, that are written on the heart. It doesn't say the law is written on their heart. It says the works of the law or the penalties of the law and what will be done to you if you break the law are written on their conscience and their hearts. And their conscience accuses them or excuses them. Hence, when you go back to the passage you're reading in Isaiah and says that the earth is polluted by them, they have transgressed the laws, the laws that he is referring to is the Noahic laws that have, and the, the deeds of it, or sorry, the works of it have been written on Gentile hearts. And they are what's polluted the rest of the planet. And because of that, I have to get, I have to destroy the planet. I have to destroy these Gentiles who have broken my laws. Is that okay? Are, that, that's Sometimes people didn't understand the, Mosaic, the Noahic law is still in effect. Noah was not Jewish, right? It's not Jewish. There were no Jews before. I mean, Abraham started it, but Abraham is also a Gentile because he's a Gentile, he's Semitic, but... He became the first Jew, but he's also Gentile, by the way. So you go back to Noah. Noah's not a Jew. Neither are his sons. So when God gives a covenant to Noah, that's in effect still. It's never been rendered inoperative. It's still in effect. And you know, interesting enough, the Jews, when, they, when they're asked, how are Gentiles saved? They say the Gentiles are saved by keeping the Noahic Covenant. If, if they say the Gentiles, if they'll keep the Noahic Covenant, then they can be saved by that. And so they'll have the, 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 the trees of the righteous now that are planted in Israel, and they'll look at like Oscar Schindler's buried there, and a few other people, they'll say those were righteous Gentiles who obeyed the Noahic Covenant. That's how they view us as far as salvation is concerned. Well, you can read this for yourself. What the Noahic Covenant is, if you go to Genesis chapter 9. Yeah, we'll read, we'll read the whole passage 1 through 17 and we'll finish on this. Verse 1 says this in 9, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Commandment. Commandment. Did you see the commandment? What is it? Ah, wait a second, wait a second. The dominion mandate is right there. It's repeated. That's what was said to Adam and Eve. It's now repeated in the Noahic Covenant. As part of Gentiles fulfilling the Noahic Covenant, you must produce babies. You must fill the earth and populate the earth. Yes. Homosexuality is an attack on that. Lesbian is an attack on that. Transgender is an attack on that. Abortion is an attack on that. And just simply not having kids. Not, if, not don't, don't get me wrong. It's not about if you can't have kids. It's if you, if you desire that you won't have kids. The Europeans are guilty for this. And look what's happening to them. They have decided not to have kids because it's too much of a burden for them. They'd rather party until they're 65 years old. And they have no kids whatsoever. And guess who is pumping out kids? Muslims. Six to eight of them. Cranking them out. Shelling them out. And they're overpopulating now because they're having six to eight kids and, and they're overtaking the Europeans because the Europeans just don't want to have kids. And what's happening to America? Same thing. 
We don't want to have any kids. They're too expensive. They're too much of a burden. I'd rather spend my money on myself. I'd rather just live how I want to live and not have the burden of these kids. And it's just too much trouble. It used to be the average American is like 2.5. It's now below 2.0. It's like 1.97 or something like that. I forget what the stat is. It's, it's dropping because we're, we're adopting European values. And Europe's, they don't, they don't have any kids. It's not having kids anymore. And the fear of you and the dread of you, of you shall be on every beast on the earth, on every bird of the air and on the move on the, and all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hands. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. You Gentiles do not have to keep kosher. You can eat anything you want. Uh, that's, so you have to understand that, that that's different than Israel, okay? I have given you all things even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. The requirement of draining blood is still required for Gentiles. You are not to eat blood. Still in effect. You think people violate that? Yes. Pagan cultures drink blood. Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it, and from the hand of a man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. The idea then is capital punishment for murder. The one thing he wants the Gentiles to govern is capital punishment for murder. I require a life for a life. And what do the liberals not want to do? They do not want to do capital punishment for murdering. They want to give them life sentences. That's a violation of the Noahic Covenant. They should be put to death. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he was made. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly into the earth and multiply in it. Again, there's a, a readmonition of having babies. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants. Who are the descendants after you? All of mankind. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, the beasts of the earth, with you and all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I will uh, I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I will set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look onto it to remember the everlasting covenant. There's the term. Did you see it? The same term that Isaiah used. What do I want you to pick up on that? That's the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature on, uh, of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So, it's not a lot of laws. It's only a few, but think of the implications in those laws. Murder, populate, right? What else? Don't eat flesh, don't eat blood, uh, don't eat the blood. That's why in the Acts 15 passage, in the early church, they said, we gotta tell these, these Gentiles, don't practice sexual immorality. And don't eat things strangled that have blood in it. Remember that? Admonition Acts 15? That's why the early church, uh, apostles said, said that, because they said, what do we do with these Gentiles? They said, let's bring them back to the Noahic covenant. Make sure they're make, at least doing the Noahic covenant. That way they won't offend any Jews, because they say, well, they're Gentiles and they're under the Noahic covenant. Okay. Here's the deal. I'm going to end on this. Think of the implication on just those few passages. Murder, and I want you to have babies. What's implied in all of that? From those just few commandments, the implications are numerous.
it just drops into multiple, multiple laws. It drops into a whole legal system for Gentiles of how to handle people who kill people, homicide, manslaughter, whatever you want to call it. It's all under that. About food. What do you do with food? And it also deals with what do you do about sexual immorality? Because implied in this, in the fact that I want you to have babies, is the Genesis mandate of how people should be married. So all under this is how I want you to be married, how I want you to eat, and how I want you to deal with crime. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And it's all there, and the Gentiles will be held responsible for that. Now here's another thing most people don't think about. In the dominion mandate that's repeated in the Noahic Covenant, the mandate is to fill the earth. Dominion. Have dominion over it. Use its natural resources for your benefit. Harness the power of the earth. Use it to better you. Which is the exact opposite of the environmental movement. The environmental movement says, hands off the earth. You're hurting the earth. You're using up all the resources. God's saying the opposite. Please use the resources. That's what you're, it's there for. It's for your survival. And they're saying, don't touch it. It's the exact opposite. It's the spiritual element associated with it. Yeah, because they, they thought the superstition went, and this is, goes ancient, that there's power in blood. Because it was a corruption of what God required for sacrifice. And they said, you know, the life is in the blood and God required blood sacrifice. The ancients took that and corrupted it and turned it into, you know, vampirism, if you want to call it, and said if you, if you get blood, especially from children, it had a special quality to it and gave you power. And so that's all across the pagan world. And it's happening even today in different forms with paganism. So we take a break and we'll come back, okay? Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear them, Please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our Redemption Dolls mirror. God bless.